sermon scripture is uh, located in two places, Matthew 5, 1 through 2, which is page 837, and Matthew 7, 24 through 29, which is page 841 in your pew Bible. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell." And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. May the Lord bless the reading of the Bible. You know, a couple weeks ago, Rick started a sermon series that he's calling Walking in the Way. And part of the source for this series is a book by Alexander Hamilton. It's titled, The Way, Walking in the Footsteps of Jesus. Today we're going to continue that theme as we look at Matthew chapter 5. Our verses this morning mark the beginning and ending portions of the longest sermon we have in Scripture that's attributed to Jesus. Many of us will recognize it as the Sermon on the Mount. It contains the popular Beatitudes, the references to salt and light, Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, and as we read earlier, the reference to our actions being like building a house on sand or on rock. The unifying theme of this is that it's the life well lived in Christ that beckons others to join us in salvation and results in hearing that phrase that we all long to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. We all know, or rather should know, that it is by faith through grace that we are saved. So living out these passages, the passages in these chapters, indeed the entire Bible, it's not a question of salvation. It's a question of relationship. It's a question of motivation or contentment. It's the answer to the question, do we really love the Lord our God, or are we simply trying to avoid hell, or maybe at least discomfort? encapsulated between he began to teach them and when Jesus finished are some of the toughest standards to live by that exist in the Bible. When I'm preparing for this sermon, I came across a person writing about a man named Wilbur Reese, a preacher who was preaching a sermon about rating sermons. I won't go too far into the details of it, but he talked about rating sermons like we rate movies today. Rated G sermons are those messages that are generally acceptable to everyone. They contain phrases like, go ye into the world and smile. Or, what the world needs is peace, motherhood, and lower taxes. Now, PG sermons, they're for more mature congregations. They have mild suggestions for change, but they're subtle enough to allow the preacher to backpedal and change the meaning if he finds that he's inadvertently offended someone. R-rated sermons are ones where the preacher tells it like it is, 
These usually indicate that the pastor has an outside source of income and has a fairly healthy self-image. <laughs> These sermons, according to Reese, definitely aren't intended for everyone, only those who wish to be challenged in their spiritual walk. And finally, yes, you knew it was coming, they're the X-rated sermons. As Wilbur Reese puts it, these are the explosive ideas of the kind that got the prophet Amos run out of town and Jeremiah thrown into the well. That's Jeremiah the prophet, not Jeremiah the bullfrog. When you preach an X-rated sermon, he says, you preach them with your suitcase packed and the moving van ready. The Sermon on the Mount, understood in its proper context and meaning, is exactly that sort of sermon. And Jesus was the master at him the master at them. Point is that as beloved as these passages are, as wonderful a wall hangings they make or plaques or bookmarks or postcards, we've lost their true meaning, their true calling, their piercing rebuke to our daily lives. We've grown comfortable. At this point, I have no doubt some of you are thinking you've heard me say these kinds of things before. In some ways, it seems to be a mark of my sermons. It's as much a calling out of myself personally as it is of anyone who hears this message, but I also believe that it's the Holy Spirit crying out for anyone with ears to hear. We need to get out of our comfort, out of our routines and rituals, and pardon the phrase, but off our duffs, and be the salt and light in the world that God has called each of us to be. Just in case you think I've strayed off the mark and onto my soapbox, let's take a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we could do countless hours of study just on this one sermon from our Savior. But for this morning, I want to take a quick look at the Beatitudes, the salt and light, the illustrations that Jesus used in regards to the law, and then briefly look at the end about building our proverbial houses. According to the Life Application Study Bible, the Beatitudes can be understood in at least four ways first mentioned is as a code of ethics for the disciples and others. Second, as a contrast to the kingdom of values as opposed to earthly values. Third, as a contrast of superficial faith, like the Pharisees, with the real faith that Christ demands. And finally, fourth, as a way to see how Old Testament expectations would be fulfilled in the new kingdom. Now, most of us are used to thinking of the Beatitudes in that last way of understanding. We look at how glorious it will be to have all of our suffering gone, the persecutions ended, and all the other wonders that heaven will bring. But did you notice how that was the last of the ways? Did you notice that the first three were really about how we are to live our lives if we're to walk in the way of our Lord? The blessings are actually benedictions, descriptive of the character that should be found in all of us as Christians. For example, when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, we're not reading about the poor people sitting on the street corner. We're reading of those who acknowledge their own spiritual bankruptcy and their need for the grace our Lord provides. What about the blessed are the meek? Meekness in the ancient world, according to Pilch and Molina's Handbook of Biblical Social Values, 
is gentleness, coupled with nonviolence that is followed not because of any revulsion to violence, but because the meek person can use violence, but has enough confidence and ability not to threaten or challenge others, especially when the opponent is unworthy or too weak. Or how about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Righteousness is reflected in those things that are upright, virtuous, noble, morally right, and ethical. Righteousness is a lifestyle that conforms to the will of God. True believers at least try to saturate every aspect of their lives with righteousness, knowing that the spirit of the living God dwells inside of them to lead and guide them on the path. This is the living out of a hunger for righteousness that, again, should characterize each of us. Poor in spirit, meek, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is it starting to make more sense that this is a list of what a Christian should be, what we should look like if we're walking in the way? The more we recognize these beloved verses for the lessons they truly are, the quicker Jesus' sermon moves from G to PG or even further. We start to feel the pricks of conscience that remind us how far we have to go if we're truly striving to be the Christians that Jesus is calling us to be. It takes work. It means getting out of the comfort that we strive so hard to achieve and treating it as the refuse or garbage that Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians. Comfort in our pews, contentment in our services and ministries, complacency in our daily lives, these should all be warning signs. Big flashing beacons that we're not running the race anymore, but trying to coast into the finish line, satisfied simply to cross over it. Note that from the Beatitudes, Jesus immediately states that we are to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. It's not a separate discussion. It's not a different content. He didn't transition. It's a conclusion drawn from the description of a Christian that he just provided to the crowds. If we're truly living as Christians, walking the path, walking in Jesus' footsteps, we will influence those around us will add flavor and richness to those lives we touch. Our actions will shed light on the beliefs we hold and the Lord we serve. These descriptions should be something that not only speaks to each of us, but about each of us. By modeling and developing the character described in the Beatitudes, we're striving to be continually renewed and transformed to the behavior of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We're running the race, giving our full effort throughout the duration. I know sometimes earthly life seems like an eternity, especially when it hurts just to get up in the morning or when we're exhausted going to bed at night after a hard day. Just the thought of eternity seems exhausting and distant, barely fathomable. Then again, it probably seems like yesterday that we were children playing on the playground, going to school, trying hard to sit still in that church pew, 
during a long sermon. The fact is that all our efforts here on earth are but a blink of an eye. Too fast to even put in perspective when compared to eternity. Yet we value the comfort of a few hours or even a few minutes over the eternal reward a little discomfort may bring. It can be an imposition. It's hard to cultivate. And again, it takes time. It takes work. And time is a scarce commodity these days. But then again, if we're not seasoning the lives of others with the salt of our salvation in Christ, what good are we doing as the servants of God? For salt to be of any use, it not only has to have its flavor, but it has to come in contact with something else. It has to be used. Salt in a jar comfortably sitting on the shelf has no value. And what about the light? That seems pretty straightforward, right? We're supposed to set the example, show people what it means to be a Christian, not hide the fact that we believe, correct? Put our lamps on the lampstands. In the Holman New Testament commentary, Dr. Stuart Reber states pretty forwardly that the light represents our good works, which must be done with such integrity that all those who see have no choice but to credit our Father in heaven. It's not reflective of us. It's reflective of him. The Christian's life and influence is to be visible and obvious, not secret or hidden. We must not camouflage our devotion to Christ, but humbly do all we can to allow its truest colors to be seen where we live. When we shine our light before others by living righteously, we are making visible the character of the Father. Here again, we're finding it's the action of our lives, not just our beliefs, inseparable from the model that Jesus has provided. That's where we live, not just here in this room, not just contained in this brick building. And really, not much of it looks comfortable. Persecution, mourning, poor in spirit. So I want to ask you, how comfortable are you in life? in this church, in that pew, in your seat. As Jesus continues, he tells us in his sermon that he did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. Again, this is yet another popular passage from Matthew, but it's also one that's often misrepresented and misunderstood. I think that's why Jesus followed it up with the examples that he used. Think about it. Each one of these examples starts with you have heard. He starts with a law or a religious teaching. But Jesus' way is often more difficult because it addresses our hearts. It's often what we want to do that we hold ourselves back because of the earthly consequences of the law. But how often do we think about the eternal consequences of what's in our hearts? And no, again, I'm not talking about salvation. Remember, these aren't how you get into heaven, and these aren't the things that will keep you out. 
It's not about you. These are the things that will keep you from seizing the opportunities that God has for you to participate in bringing everyone else along. These are the things that, if ignored, limit your effectiveness for his kingdom, much the way that ignoring the character we should have limits our Christian witness. Take, for example, verse 27, where Jesus mentions the commandment against committing adultery. While the law focuses on the physical act, Jesus focuses on our heart, telling us that we've committed adultery in our heart if we're just looking at another person with lust. I dare say that most of us know the passage about revenge, an eye for an eye. Common understanding at that time was that revenge was okay, as long as the damage that was inflicted was proportional. It's where an eye for an eye came from. But Jesus makes it clear that a citizen of his kingdom does not repay evil for evil. Not only that, but it requires us to love those who don't love us. Even further still, loving those who persecute you and hate you. Talk about tough. This isn't the golden rule. Treat people how you want to be treated, no matter how you feel about them. You actually have to love them. That means wanting the best for them, wanting their happiness, wanting good things for them. You know, actual love. And when we're walking in the way of Jesus, lustful glances are no different than adultery. You've got to turn the other cheek. You've got to love your enemy. You've got to go further than the law requires to the point of transforming your heart in pure sacrifice. These are not logical or natural ways for us, for any of us. And that's what makes them hard. That's what makes Christians different. It's what further demonstrates to ourselves and everyone else that we can't do it on our own. And we desperately need our Savior. Finally, we come to the second part of our reading from Matthew this morning. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, this may seem like a silly question, but why do you think Jesus would end such a challenging and controversial sermon as the Sermon on the Mount with a simile comparing not the hearing or the understanding, but the doing or the not doing of what you have heard? Once again, Jesus is reinforcing the fact that it is what we do that speaks volumes to those around us and brings people to want to experience what we have found. But did you notice the curious part of this summary? Both men built houses. One didn't look at the other and say, ooh, I really like your house. I want one of those for myself. No. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew. Those two men, like all of us, experienced the storms of life which beat upon our faith and seemingly try to drown our belief in the cares and worries and troubles of this world. If we're not building our character on the principles our Lord has provided, then we're very much like the second man and we might as well be building sandcastles. If we're not doing the things we ought to be doing, those things that reflect the glory of God and the Father 
to all who might see, have no foundation on which to stand. It's through those storms and trials of life that our faith shows through, that our character shows through. So what do you think? Was Jesus preaching a PG, an R, or an X-rated sermon? As difficult as these words are to accept and apply today, I have no doubt it was hard to accept back then. But what about us today, here in this room? Thousands of years have gone by, and we still don't seem to fully understand, much less follow the teachings that are laid out in the sermon. As the culture continues to swing against conservative Christian values, it's continually harder to resist putting our lights away, only showing them in places like this sanctuary, in our safe, comfortable pews. Letting that light shine, showing our faith, sharing our faith, living our faith boldly is becoming more challenging and contentious. We're no longer as comfortable sharing the gospel outside these brick walls as we once were, but the call is still there. There are people yet to be reached, people yet to be saved, people yet to be loved, held, and healed through the Father's love and the Son's sacrifice. How will they be reached if we don't reach out for them? Or are we telling ourselves that God will reach whom he will with or without us? It's true, he will. But then who's missing out, them or us? I mean, did you ever notice Jesus didn't set up shop in Nazareth or Galilee or even Jerusalem? He didn't tell everyone to come to him. I mean, word spread wide and far. They would have. Come for the healing and the miracles. But whether it was for healing or learning or more, Jesus traveled to preach and teach, to save. His entire adult ministry was spent traveling to reach the lost and to get the word out. I'm not suggesting that we all hit the road and become itinerant preachers, though. Okay, that would be really fun. But how many people do you know right here in Mineola that don't have a church home? How many people do you know right here that maybe you've shared your faith with? How many not just once, but multiple times? And not because they agree with you, but because they disagree with you. Not because they share your values, but because they need to hear the word of God. How many people do you pass by every day and the thought never even crosses your mind as to whether you embodied Christ to them that day? If you're anything like me, the number is a difficult one to own up to. Maybe even one you can't count. How cool would it be, though, to walk in the way of Jesus, fully committed to shining our light, flavoring the world around us with the salt of our salvation and seeing what God would do with that? Or better yet, what about if we were hanging out in heaven? Somebody comes up to us, up to you. 
and says, because you loved me, because you modeled Christ to me, because you cared, I too was able to accept the grace of forgiveness that Christ has to offer. Because you showed me his love, I was able to accept his love and learn to love him in return. And because of all of that, I too was saved. How cool it would it be to be able to sit and praise God in heaven, not just with those who happen to come along for the ride, but who you helped to bring there. Again, we've got plenty of space in this pew, in this in the sanctuary in these pews. How many people could we bring in to hear the word of God? We've got earlier service, we've got Saturday service coming up. I think that's part of the Holy Spirit's calling to us today. We're not done yet. We're still here. There's more people yet to be reached. How can we be a part of that? Let us pray. Father, it's a wonderful thing to think of heaven and all the glories to come. And as we go forward from our sanctuary today and head out into the world for the next week, I pray for all of us the opportunity to reach out, to model Christ to others and not just shine our light, but share our light. Share your light. Lord, I pray that we recognize these opportunities that you're giving us and we take advantage of them to participate with you. Spring is such a wonderful time of new birth and new growth. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Lord, if we could see new birth and new growth in our own church and take it all the way through to salvation, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.